But Donald Trump says he wants to unite the country, and if you look at his polling numbers, he's getting damn close. <laughs> Good point. Yes, he is. Who doesn't hate the guy? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM people-powered radio in L.A. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and in Eureka on KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Goldendale, Washington on KVGD, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day for you on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio and Detour Talk, Who Doesn't Love the World Famous Broadcast? Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining both Desi Doyen and myself today here on the Bradcast. Uh, Des, uh, it is uh, not without good reason that Jim Hoft, you know where I'm going here. Uh, he calls himself uh, the Gateway Pundit. The rest of the world seems to call him the dumbest guy on the Internet. Is that yes. what they call him? And he's, he's definitely up there at the top. Uh, yes. And frankly, he's an embarrassment to the entire state of Missouri and my old beloved hometown of St. Louis, because that's where he's from. So once again, I feel like I always need to apologize when I talk about Jim Hoft. I need to apologize to the rest of the country, perhaps the rest of the world for him. Um, but anyway, yeah, it is not without good reason that uh, at least in the Twitter uh, Twitter sphere, they call him the uh, dumbest guy on the Internet. The number of ridiculous nonsense stories that he's put out and has had to either retract because they were completely wrong or put out but never bothered to retract despite being completely wrong. That would take just years to cover here. So uh, you're welcome. I won't do that. Nonetheless. Uh, his website, you know, he, he has White House credentials, this guy. And the president of the United States actually follows and retweets this guy, I think. Uh, so just for a fresh reminder of how dumb gateway pundit Jim Hoft actually is. How dumb is he? Well, he tweeted, he tweeted the following during last week's polar vortex freeze that slammed the Midwest and the Northeast. It uh, dipped Temperatures down to four below zero in uh, five below, actually, in St. Louis, Missouri, where Hoft is, uh, which he tweeted out with a graphic on a blistering cold but a sunny morning, uh, along with the text, quote, 
It's a bit cold outside this morning in middle America. Aren't you glad you're heating your home? Aren't you glad you aren't heating your home with a solar panel like nitwit socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is demanding? (sighs) Because it was cold outside, he apparently thinks that solar panels don't work, Desi Doyen. Yeah, because I read that and I thought, what, the sun doesn't shine in St. Louis? Call NASA. The the sun shines in St. (laughs) Louis, even according to his own graphic that he put out to show that it was at that moment negative four degrees. But if you look, 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 10 a.m., 11 a.m., Full sunshine. A gorgeous, sunny winter day. He seems to think that solar panels work by being heated up by the sun and that if we use solar, why, we would just all be dead uh, when it got cold outside. Well, I know, waiting for any of these right-wingers to have any concept of how, I don't know, science or engineering actually works if it doesn't serve their ideology, you know, is is a fool's errand. And, and, you know, panels, solar panels actually work better the colder it is. So... (laughs) God, <laughs> it's crazy. But hey, that's a, that's today's right wing. Yeah, that's today's right wing. Uh, more on that, more on today's right wing and their misunderstanding of solar and uh, on the polar vortex and on the insane uh, extreme weather swings that are now going on in Australia. Uh, and much more. Uh, stay tuned for later on when Desi Doyen joins us for yes. today's Green News Report. I will be here. Now on to the second dumbest guy on the Internet, though it's a very close call, I think. Um, President Trump, according to uh, Washington Post, is expected to call for more bipartisan cooperation in his State of the Union address on Tuesday night. White House aides say Trump plans to forge consensus. Incl- <laughs> Sorry. Don't laugh. You're, this is the news portion, uh, including, including around uh, infrastructure projects and cutting the cost of prescription drugs. Well, good luck with that infrastructure uh, part. Uh, we are very much in need of a lot of infrastructure spending. But Trump's previously proposed one point five uh, trillion dollar infrastructure scheme, which he has p- uh, pushed repeatedly over the past couple of years. That $1.5 trillion scheme includes just $200 billion in actual federal spending. The rest is supposed to come from states and most notably from private companies who would be allowed to privatize for profit much of the nation's critical infrastructure under Trump's so far dead-on-arrival proposal. We'll see if he has a, a, a new scheme, a new plan to offer along those lines, or if he does... The same old thing by just repeating the same quote unquote uh, proposal over and over again and then throw a fit when uh, Democrats don't like it. Uh, White House officials insisted on Monday, speaking of throwing fits, that Donald Trump will not use the speech as a cudgel to pummel Democrats over his proposed U.S.-Mexico border wall. White House senior advisor Kellyanne Conway told reporters on Monday that this president is going to call for an end to the politics of resistance, retribution, and call for more comedy. That's comedy, <laughs> not comedy. Uh, he, he's calling for cooperation, she says, and also compromise. Really, is he? We'll see if he's uh, interested in compromising as we are now just about, uh, what, 10 days from another potential government shutdown over the uh, border wall that Donald Trump does not seem interested in compromising on one bit. 
Uh, anyway, uh, Kellyanne Conway today uh, went on to emphasize uh, on Fox News that Trump will call for unity in the speech and said it will be interesting to see how Democrats react. Um, she said anybody who's willing, uh, who, who's sitting there with their arms folded, harumphing, looking like they've sucked on 12 lemons, that's on them, not on him, because he's calling for unity. He's calling for working together, she said today on Fox News. With a straight face. Right. So uh, that may be true. Uh, if, if so, however, he's got a very funny way of showing it. Hours before the uh, Tuesday speech in which calls for more bar- bipartisanship were promised, Trump attacked Democratic Senate Minority Leader Chuck, uh, Chuck Schumer for, Democrat, for him losing Democratic seats in last year's election. Trump tweeted, quote, I see Schumer is already criticizing my State of the Union speech. He's just upset that he didn't win the Senate after spending a fortune like he thought he would. Well, there's comedy for you. Uh, Trump's uh, tweet came just minutes after Schumer went on the Senate floor to speak in advance of Trump's address. The president will say the state of our union is strong. The state of the Trump economy failing America's middle class, the state of Trump health care, failing American families, the state of the Trump administration, chaos, the state of Trump foreign policy, woefully backward, inside out. The list of broken or empty promises is long. The gap between the president's rhetoric in the State of the Union and reality is cavernous, perhaps even more empty than his policy promises. Our President Trump's calls for unity each year. It seems every year the President wakes up and discovers the desire for unity on the morning of the State of the Union. (laughs) Then the President spends the other 364 days of the year dividing us. If past speeches are an indication, the President will be in his own bubble. Schumer went on to say, so in sum, the State of our Union is in need of drastic repair. Sounds about right. And of course, uh, yeah, so I I don't have much uh, hope for uh, unity with this speech. And apparently neither does the president of the United States before he plans to go out and call for unity. In any event, Schumer uh, fired back at Trump after Trump fired at him on Twitter uh, about an hour after the president had criticized him for panning his speech. Uh, Schumer said, uh, thanks for watching my speech, but you have missed the line even more empty than his policy promises or President Trump's calls each year for unity. Yes, apparently uh, Trump did not get that memo, that memo from his own speech, his own advisors, that that's what he was supposed to be doing. At least for one day, he couldn't even do that. Uh, I guess the call then for unity uh, fell apart before it began. Anyway, we will have full coverage or whatever it's worth uh, of the Tuesday State of the Union address on tomorrow's broadcast. Is is Digby joining us? Yes, tomorrow? she is. All right. That's worth tuning in for. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, Schumer's description of the president's uh, foreign policy as incoherent, inconsistent, cynical in the extreme and having undermined American power and our national interest... As he charged, uh, we'll be joined momentarily by a former senior State Department official under President Obama to discuss really an astonishing moment in U.S. and world history, really, this past week. 
that has received what seems to me to be extraordinarily little coverage, at least compared to what it seems like it deserves, as uh, Trump simply ended a decades-long anti-nuclear proliferation agreement with Russia that was struck originally between Ronald Reagan and then-Soviet Union leader Mikhail Gorbachev. It just... It's just gone. It's went away. And the media has already moved on to talk about so many other things. Um, so we'll get to that in a moment. But very quickly, speaking of, uh, of Schumer's description of the Trump administration as being embroiled in chaos and incompetence, yet more chaos enveloped the administration late on Monday and now into today as federal prosecutors in New York delivered a sweeping request for documents related to donations and spending by President Trump's inaugural committee, a sign of a deepening criminal investigation into activities related to the nonprofit organization set up, at least in theory, to run Trump's 2017 inaugural festivities but which may have been used for much, much more than that, at least based on what we know and what is uh, revealed by the uh, wide-ranging subpoena on Monday night from prosecutors in both the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York, that's Brooklyn, based in Brooklyn, uh, as well as prosecutors from the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York in Manhattan. So two different U.S. Attorney's Offices, neither of them Robert Mueller's special counsel. The subpoena seeks an array of documents, including all information related to inaugural donors, vendors, contractors, bank accounts of the inaugural committee, and any information related to foreign contributors to the committee. Uh, only U.S. citizens and legal residents can legally donate to a committee established to uh, finance presidential inaugural festivities. And frankly, it is shameful and embarrassing that domestic entities, never mind the, the foreigners for a second, that domestic entities above and beyond mere citizens and legal residents uh, can contribute to these committees in unlimited amounts. Corporate donations and donations of, of any size are allowable to inauguration committees, unlike direct campaign donations, which are strictly limited to small-ish dollar amounts. Inaugural committees, for and this is for both Democrats and Republicans alike, it is embarrassing, it is shameful, same with the conventions, by the way, but they're able to receive the inaugural committees can receive unlimited funding from millionaires and billionaires and corporate entities, which to me is just a, a shameful bribe to these politicians right in front of our very eyes. And we all act as if this is totally normal. You know, when AT&T or Monsanto or Sheldon Adelson or whoever it is gives an inaugural committee a million bucks like it's nothing. No bribe or payout there. Just give a million bucks to the to the guy who's about to walk into the Oval Office and command the country and the free world. Just because you're really, really nice and you really like him. They're just being supportive. Uh, the uh, Trump inaugural committee uh, said in a statement that they intend to cooperate with the inquiry. The subpoena, according to The Washington Post, indicates that prosecutors are investigating crimes related to conspiracy to defraud the U.S., mail fraud, false statements, wire fraud and money laundering. 
The inauguration committee for Trump raised about $107 million to uh, to fund the uh, the events and the parties around his assumption of office back in January 2017. That is more than twice the amount that was raised to fund President Barack Obama's record-sized 2009 inaugural. So what happened with all that money? Where did it go? The inauguration was half the size of, of Obama's at best, but had twice as much money. What happened to it? Where did it go? Where did it come from? Apparently, contributions, according to the Post, were made by a wide array of corporate interests and wealthy Trump supporters. That, according to uh, filings with the Federal Elections Commission, the FEC. New York Times reports the prosecutors are also reportedly uh, asking for documents related to a company named Stripe, a credit card processing firm that includes Jared Kushner's brother, Josh, as an investor. It uh, the subpoena, however, does not name either Kushner specifically. So if you're keeping track at home at this point, currently uh, under state and federal investigation by prosecutors, all at the same time are the Trump Inauguration Committee now the Trump organization. That's his main business entity, along with the people running it, like his kids, Don Jr. and Eric Uh, The Trump Foundation, that's the family's personal charitable organization, supposedly charitable organization, which they allegedly used as a slush fund for illegal self-dealing and paying off legal settlements in violation of the law, according to New York prosecutors. uh, Trump University, which was found to have defrauded its students, they they paid a $25 million legal settlement just after the 2016 election and just before the inauguration that is now being investigated. And, of course, the Trump administration itself in pretty much its entirety at this point. So, yes, I would say that amounts to being embroiled in chaos as Chuck Schumer charged in his State of the Union um, pre-buttle. The uh, latest subpoena to the Trump Inauguration Committee seeks information related to benefits that were provided to top donors. Benefits provided to top donors? Training documents for fundraisers and information related to any payment made directly by donors to vendors. So... Where did the money come from is what they're trying to find out. Was it properly disclosed to the FEC? Did it come from foreign sources where fundraisers, people raising money for this thing, instructed to collect unlawful donations somehow or to make promises, offer anything in exchange for those donations? Was any of the money paid directly from donors to vendors Instead of coming through the committee, which uh, would allow, you know, the committee to take in even more money than we currently know about, even more than the record $107 million, because it would go straight to the vendors and therefore not be disclosed by the committee to the FEC. Uh, And where did all of that money go to, the money that we do know about? Much of the committee's fundraising and uh, operations were headed by Rick Gates. He's a former senior Trump campaign official. He served as deputy chair of the inaugural committee, and he is cooperating with prosecutors as part of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. After serving as uh, former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort's criminal sidekick for many years, 
Uh, Gates was there throughout the dozens of crimes that Manafort has now been found guilty of and will face sentencing for next month. As his longtime associate, Gates uh, pleaded guilty himself last February to various charges related to his work with Manafort as a political consultant in Ukraine. And he has been cooperating with the special counsel in the prosecution of Manafort and, I suspect, any investigation into the inaugural committee itself since he was its deputy chairman. So uh, that's just the newest that's just the newest thing that's going on in the the newest investigation of this disastrous Trump administration and everything that it has ever touched. Uh, I was also struck, by the way, in reading coverage of this story, how many of the stories actually use that that overhead shot. Desi, I don't know if you saw it of Donald Trump and Melania dancing on the uh, at the inaugural ball on that huge presidential seal that was laid out on yeah. the dance floor. Uh, it makes the president look tiny compared to the presidency itself. At least that's what struck my mind when I kept seeing this photo. Uh, this tiny little guy on this huge presidential seal. But if nothing else, the presidency itself has, in one sense, become tiny since then in that it really is just about one guy doing pretty much everything himself without bothering to consult with actual experts on just about you know, anything. He's not talking to anybody. He's just doing whatever the hell he wants. Uh, the immense power of the American presidency really is being held in the hands of just this one guy, one unapologetically corrupt Fox News brainwashed old man who nonetheless is still the most powerful man in the world with direct access to the so-called nuclear button and the power to wipe out the globe in a matter of seconds, if he wanted, with little or nothing, in fact, to prevent him from doing so. He seems to have taken uh, an interesting leap, sort of, in that direction this past week, as he unilaterally dissolved a decades-old nuclear arms agreement with Russia that had helped to drastically reduce the world's stockpiles. Now, that landmark treaty is seemingly gone, and it barely made a blip in the news cycle this past week when it happened. So let me take a short break here, and I want to come back and talk about that and much more with former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Michael Fuchs. Right here on the Bradcast, I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. From Russia with love, I fly to you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. It is kind of amazing that we're in the midst of a presidential administration that is in such chaos seemingly every minute of every day 
that a landmark 30-year-old nuclear agreement originally struck between Ronald Reagan and the Soviet Union's last president, Mikhail Gorbachev, can be pretty much dissolved with uh, not much more than a tweet and a few hours of corporate media coverage at best before we've all we're all sort of forced to move on to the next chaotic moment in this corrupt incompetent administration just days ago it seems like forever ago but just days ago last friday the trump administration announced that they are pulling the plug on a decades-old nuclear arms treaty with russia lifting what it sees as unreasonable constraints on competing with a resurgent russia and a more assertive china The move sets the stage for delicate talks now with U.S. allies over potential new American missile deployments. In explaining his decision, which he had foreshadowed several months ago, Trump accused Moscow of violating the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with, quote, impunity by deploying banned missiles. Moscow denies that it is in violation and has accused Washington of resisting its efforts to resolve the dispute. Democrats in Congress and some arms control advocates criticize Trump's decision as opening the door to a new arms race. The Trump decision reflects his administration's view that the arms treaty was an unacceptable obstacle to more forcefully confronting not only Russia, but also China, according to AP. I guess with medium-range nuclear-tipped missiles? I guess so. I guess that's where we're going now in order to, what, shore up Trump's trade threats against the world's largest nation? Maybe so. Leaving the INF Pact, however, risks aggravating relations with our European allies who share the administration's view that Russia is violating the treaty but who have not endorsed a U.S. withdrawal from the pact. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo formally notified Russia over the weekend that the U.S. is withdrawing from the treaty, effective in six months. In the meantime, starting Saturday, the U.S. unilaterally suspended its own obligations under the treaty. Pompeo said that if in the coming six months Russia accepts U.S. demands that it verifiably destroy the cruise missiles that Washington claims are a violation, then the treaty, he said, can be saved. If it does not, the treaty terminates, he said. Shortly after the announcement, Russian President Vladimir Putin said the Kremlin, rather than meeting U.S. demands, would also abandon the centerpiece nuclear arms treaty, but would only deploy intermediate-range missiles, nuclear missiles, if Washington does so first. The INF was the first arms control measure to ban an entire class of weapons, ground-launched cruise missiles with a range between uh, 310 miles and 3,400 miles, or 500 kilometers and 5,500 kilometers. At the time, in the late stages of the Cold War, the U.S. and its allies were mainly concerned by the perceived threat of Russian medium-range nuclear missiles that were targeted specifically towards Europe. The U.S. deployed similar missiles in response in the 1980s, leading then to the negotiations that produced the INF Treaty, which I guess we just don't need anymore. Joining us uh, for some insight here and to help me understand why this story seems to have disappeared off the radar so quickly already 
is Michael Fuchs. He's the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs under President Obama, and prior to that, a special advisor to the Secretary of State for Strategic Dialogues under then-Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. He is now a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Mr. Fuchs, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me. Uh, Listen, uh, perhaps I don't know enough about these sorts of things. Uh, Hopefully you do. But this seems to me, at least, to actually be a very big deal. And I'm I'm kind of at a loss. I'm scratching my head here as to uh, how quickly the news on this simply seems to have come and gone. So, A, uh, am I right? Is it a big deal? And, B, how do you explain uh, just how little coverage, really, this uh, seemingly critical matter seems to have... Uh, seems to be getting, uh, seems to have, you know, come and gone in the news cycle this week. Well, yeah, Brad, um, this is a very big deal. <laughs> and uh, as to your second question, mm-hmm. in the age of Trump, uh, nuclear weapons, climate change, things that could, you know, potentially end life on Earth as we know it, right. uh, I guess only merit, uh, you know, 15 minutes um, yes. uh, in the news cycle. Um, that's the only explanation I've got for you there. I mean, look, the reality here is that, as you pointed out uh, in your opening, you've got a 30-year-old treaty, mm-hmm. um, perhaps one of the biggest uh, agreements ever ever reached uh, in terms of reducing the potential uh, threat of nuclear uh, weapons mm-hmm. uh, destroying us all. Um, and the president is basically throwing this treaty out. Um, now, look, it's a, it's a complicated issue. It's not a simple cut and dry issue. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, there are a few things that I want this president to have more capability of when he's in the Oval Office, mm-hmm. and one of them is an ability to deploy more nuclear weapons, and yeah. uh, uh, this is not a good thing. It, it is uh, the administration's uh, claims, uh, and I guess uh, European, uh, the UC claims, is is he uh, is Russia, in fact, violating this INF treaty, as they both claim? Yeah, and that's where it gets complicated. I think most experts agree, um, based on the information that we have that's public, uh, that Russia is, in fact, violating uh, this treaty. It has for a number of years now. The Obama administration believes it and tried to pressure Russia uh, to come back into compliance. The Trump administration, by all accounts, has been trying to do the same over the last two years. Um, and so Russia is, in fact, in violation uh, of this treaty. Um, that does not seem to be uh, a subject of major disagreement. What is the subject of major disagreement, though, is how you actually try to address that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of people who think that, well, okay, look, if Russia is not dividing by it, then why are we abiding by it? We're tying one hand behind our back. And that seems to be the Trump administration's approach, and they're just going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, they also, I think, as you pointed out earlier as well, there are some other strategic rationales that people have in mind as to why they want to withdraw from this treaty, one of them being China. Mm-hmm. Uh, China, obviously, is a bigger and growing threat to the United States. It is developing its own series of missiles uh, and capabilities that many people in the United States uh, policy community believe we need uh, a greater ability to counter, uh, and that the INF Treaty, which we are signatory to, but China is not, Mm -hmm. constrains us. So there are a lot of people who believe that we just need to get rid of uh, this thing. I, though, do not think that that is a wise thing. Well, I want to... And I, w- I want to get to the the China element of this story uh, in a second, but but first, just to make clear, 
there are elements, do I understand it correctly, that there are elements built into this treaty, in fact, that are meant to deal with what happens when one party believes that the other party is in violation, you know, above and beyond simply quitting the agreement? Are there tools built in? To the to the pact that that are supposed to be uh, triggered in uh, in a claim like this, where they claim you know that Russia is is violating the agreement. Yeah, there are a number of potential uh, um, ways to address it uh, through the treaty. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them, my understanding is that both the you know, combination of the Obama administration and the Trump administration have tried. The uh, problem, of course, is enforcement. Uh, of them. So the administration obviously can petition the Russian government uh, for it with whatever evidence that it may uh, it may have. Um, and it, of course, can threaten to actually withdraw from it, which some believe may have been leveraged. The Trump administration tried to do that last year, obviously, and it didn't work. Um, and so there are a few mechanisms that are available. The problem is that they are not, of course, uh, um, uh, guaranteed uh, to work because at the end of the day they require the country to actually uh, want to abide uh, by them. Um, and so again, in this case, obviously, they have not worked yet. Well, it, it, you uh, say, Michael Fuchs, that you disagree with uh, the way to, uh, handling this uh, is to pull out despite Russia violating the treaty in some fashion. If uh, pulling out, if you know, if they haven't taken our, our warnings that hey, we might pull out. Uh, and now we actually say we are going to pull out. You disagree with that approach. What would have been or what would be a smarter way to deal with these disagreements as you see it? Right. So there are a variety of different ways that you could have done it. One is to, frankly, to continue to work on the um, pressure campaign uh, diplomatically that the last two administrations have tried just because it hasn't worked over the last few years does not mean that it cannot work Mm -hmm. uh, over time. Second of all is that you get your allies and others uh, on board as well, not just the Europeans, but potentially others uh, as well, to try to pressure uh, the Russians over this. And there are, of course, varying degrees of pressure that you can use in cases like this um, that are beyond just diplomatic. They can include, obviously, things like economic sanctions and so forth. Um, Beyond that, though, the major problem here with throwing out this treaty is that Again, it is equivalent to basically throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right now, Russia is violating this treaty in a specific way, but a lot of the benefits of the treaty are still intact, which includes the ability of the United States to actually conduct inspections and do verification of a number of different aspects of Russia's compliance with the treaty. So, right, Russia is, Mm -hmm. from what we understand, violating part of the treaty, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily violating all of the treaty. And we still have the ability to actually inspect uh, with our own people um, what the Russians are doing. By taking ourselves out of the treaty, we are taking away our ability to inspect uh, the other things that the Russians are doing here. And not only does that, of course, allow the Russians to potentially start violating it uh, even more, mm-hmm. um, posing more danger to the United States, but it's giving a giant gift to Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin has made clear for years that he doesn't like this treaty. He doesn't want to be constrained. And, as you mentioned at the beginning, his immediate response to the U.S. pulling out of this was, of course, that he was going to do the same. Um, And so, again, I think this is a giant gift uh, to Putin that doesn't help the United States. Well, that was actually my question. I was, you know, going to say who actually benefits from that. I think you answered that. Um, Russia clearly uh, will, if only because they won't have the inspections. Do we get? Is there anything 
that we might get here in uh, in pulling out of this as far as a, a benefit goes? How does this uh, well, how how is the Trump administration, I guess, uh, claiming that this would actually help the U.S. in some fashion? Yeah, so the Trump administration is claiming that it'll supposedly help us in a couple of different ways. One, of course, is that it does no longer ties behind our hand, one hand behind our back in terms of our ability to counter, you know, Russian capabilities and build up uh, that the Russians are uh, um, engaged in mm-hmm. uh, on the missile front. Um, based on all the folks uh, in the expert community who focus on these issues, I feel find very few of any people who actually believe that the United States is missing some capability here mm. um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, to enable us to counter the Russians. So I don't think it, that, that argument flies. Um, the second argument, of course, again, is the China argument, and that the Chinese are building up their capabilities here. We, because of the treaty, are constrained in our ability to counter the Chinese capabilities, um, and so we need to free our hand here to Mm -hmm. build up capabilities to counter new Chinese uh, missile capabilities. Um, My view on that is that, one, there is a path to be had here in terms of diplomacy with China uh, on this front uh, um, that could help us here without withdrawing from the treaty. Mm -hmm. But the second one is also that, again, if you talk to most people in the expert community here, not only is there really a small, if no need, to build new forces to counter the Chinese uh, there, there's actually very little that we can do uh, in Asia right now. We couldn't, for instance, find any place to deploy new missiles, even if we wanted to build them in Asia. So at the end, at the end of the day, the Trump arguments here just don't really seem to hold much water. I'm glad you say that, Michael, because as I was looking into the story and and thinking about it and and reading the arguments from the administration, uh, you know, the notion that China is such a military threat that our current existing missiles, uh, as opposed to the medium-range INF non-compliant missiles, that they would somehow be inadequate to meet the threats that we face from China, the, the hard military threats. Uh, and, you know, that we would need to break this treaty in order to somehow protect the U.S. It seemed like uh, it seems like a complete red herring, frankly. Uh, I mean, is there any additional I know uh, there are questions about where to place them and so forth. But I mean, we we've got offshore. We've got ships all over the place that can send in plenty of missiles to China if for some reason we actually entered into a military entanglement with them. Right. There's there's no the shortage of U.S. defense against China as a military threat at this point, is there? No, and I think that fundamentally, while China without a doubt is a big and growing threat, um, and that there are definitely things that we should be doing in East Asia Mm -hmm. to bolster our deterrence capabilities against uh, China, um, this is not one area of particular need or concern Mm -hmm. uh, right now. Um, and furthermore, there are ways, even for those people who are concerned about this, uh, of which I am not one, um, there are other ways of going about doing this that do not require you to withdraw from the INF Treaty uh, to do it. To be, to be clear, uh, you, you say you're not concerned about that. You're talking about the threat from China and not uh, the idea of leaving the, 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 the INF Treaty. Okay. Uh, This week, uh, the U.S. intelligence community, uh, Trump's own appointees, I need to underscore here, not evil uh, deep state Democrats like uh, like you, Michael, um, but actual (laughs) Trump appointees. uh, They released their 
annual worldwide threat assessment. They disagreed with Donald Trump on just about everything, it seems. Uh, And as part of it, uh, they cited, excuse me, the growing threat of the alliance uh, between the military alliance uh, and I guess diplomatic alliance between Russia and China. They said that it has not been as strong as it is uh, now since the 1950s. Does anything in that assessment actually support the idea of leaving this agreement in some fashion? Uh, do, do they call for this? Do they say our hands are tied? We need more tools. I'm trying to get an idea of just uh, where this comes from. Who is, who is actually calling for this uh, to happen other than, as you note, Vladimir Putin? Yeah, I think that this is coming from uh, John Bolton the national security advisor to the president, Mm -hmm. Um, and in a small part, uh, President Trump himself. First, President Trump himself has repeatedly talked about um, his intention and willingness to build up U.S. uh, nuclear and missile capabilities Mm -hmm. um, to counter uh, what he perceives as threats. Um, Again, I think that's one place. But I also think that John Bolton, again, this is a person who for decades has made clear his disdain for international agreements, and specifically for international arms control agreements. And he has repeatedly actually worked to, and in some places succeeded, in taking helping take the United States out of treaties. In the early 2000s, when he was a senior State Department official in mm-hmm. charge of arms control, he helped shepherd uh, the U.S. withdrawal from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which is also a treaty that we had signed with Russia. Um, of course, just after coming into office, uh, the White House this past year with the Trump administration, he also helped to torpedo the Iran nuclear uh, mm-hmm. deal. And so, again, this is very much uh, a target and has been for a long time uh, for John Bolton. And so I think that this move, again, is very much being driven by uh, him uh, and just a select few others uh, uh, at the White House. Do, do, uh, Michael, do, do you know him? Do you know John Bolton? Do you have any sense of uh, why he does this, why he wants to pull out of these treaties? Is it simply because he, uh, he, he loves war? He loves projecting American power? Is there more of a, uh, you know, a, a corrupt, uh, you know, a defense uh, contractor element here? I mean, what is this about? What is his seeming interest in marching to war again, you know, from from Iran to Russia to everywhere else that we see from uh, John Bolton for so many years? And now as he's uh, the uh, national security advisor to the president of the United States. Yeah, it perplexes me, too, uh, Brad. But I, I think really John Bolton, and he again has been this for a long way for a long time, yeah. has been illustrative of a vigorous and aggressive form of conservative ideology uh, on foreign policy for decades um, that basically espouses the idea that anything, any agreement whatsoever that the United States signs on to that constrains American ability to do whatever it is that it wants Mm. is bad for the United States. So the United Nations, it's bad. The International Criminal Criminal Court, which uh, John Bolton has targeted as well Mm -hmm. in his time, uh, uh, the Trump White House, is bad. Arms control agreements, bad. He and others uh, um, uh, in his circles just have a almost religious uh, opposition to anything that might 
have the United States not being able to do whatever it is it wants. Whether or not it actually, you know, wants to build, say, more missiles or, or what have you, mm-hmm. he doesn't like the idea mm. the United States is not allowed to do it. The, uh, that's bizarre to me because, uh, you know, at least if they argued, uh, oh, we are not secure because our hands are tied on this or that, it sounds more like it's not a matter of security, it's a matter of we don't want to be with the rest of the world. We want to be isolationists. We want to be able to do whatever the hell we want at any time. And just the idea that we have any constraints, uh, you know, that that is somehow a bad thing for the U.S. Is there any recourse, uh, Michael, that uh, that a future president, well, that either Congress here uh, or a future president could do uh, when it comes to this, uh, you know, 30-year-old treaty that uh, seems to have been by and large working and seems to be gone, you know, in a matter of uh, seconds with a presidential tweet. Can any of this be rolled back in some fashion? I mean, only time will tell, obviously. Um, I think that, you know, we'll have to wait and see how Russia responds. As you pointed out, Vladimir Putin said that they will also withdraw from the treaty, but they will not deploy any new missiles unless the United States does so. Um, I could see a world in which both sides have withdrawn, but no one is deploying new missiles, and a new administration perhaps comes around to their senses and uh, tries to find a new path forward um, with Russia. Mm -hmm. But there are also broader arms control concerns that we have here uh, with Russia. Um, The uh, New START Treaty, which is a a treaty that actually limited the number of nuclear weapons that each country um, could uh, could have, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to this INF Treaty, which is just about the missile uh, systems. Um, That one was negotiated during the Obama administration, and it will expire in the next couple of years. Um, And so there is a very, very big new question out there looming about what will this administration in Russia do to try to renegotiate and extend uh, that arms control treaty, or will it expire? Um, And that would be a truly, truly devastating uh, thing, because then both countries would not only be able to build the missile Mm -hmm. systems to deliver these warheads, but they'd also be able to build more of the actual warheads. And I see no reason why uh, Donald Trump, with John Bolton at his side, would want to continue that particular treaty, I hate to say. Uh, I've got uh, just a minute here, uh, Michael. We're speaking just a few hours before Trump's uh, State of the Union address, in which it's expected that he may officially announce a second summit with North Korean President Kim Jong-un, does breaking this INF agreement uh, strengthen or weaken the U.S. hand in dealing with North Korea? I mean, it seems to me that it sends a message that landmark nuclear weapons agreements are simply meant to be broken. No? Am I I misreading that? I think it probably just uh, is a small reaffirmation for Kim Jong-un of what he already believes about the United States, which is that we are not... Uh, we will not uphold our word, um, whether it's with previous North Korea agreements that North Korea, of course, believes we broke, or the Iran uh, nuclear deal, which Trump broke, or this one. Um, I think it will reaffirm for Kim Jong-un that the Americans are not people to be trusted, um, which is why, as much as I want there to be progress in a second summit between the two leaders, mm-hmm. um, I am uh, quite skeptical uh, of the possibility for uh, some concrete progress. Well, uh, that was my last question here. Did you expect anything will come of the second summit between the U.S.? It sounds like you don't, but uh, I could see, um, given the circumstances that we're dealing with, 
uh, Michael Fuchs, I, I could see where uh, North Korea would feel like, okay, sure, we'll strike an agreement. We'll strike an agreement, you know, anything you want that keeps uh, the U.S. off our back for another few months or years or whatever and know that, hey, we can just, uh, you know, not bother to follow this treaty whenever we feel like it because that's what the U.S. does. Would you be surprised to see something like that happen, or do you think this is all just going to fall apart next month? Um, no, I think it will actually continue, and I would not be surprised if there was some semblance of a vague agreement to move forward, because I think it gives both sides what they actually want. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump likes the writings for his summits. They're, mm -hmm. you know, really fantastic. And so he wants more of them to happen. And again, as you pointed out, Kim Jong-un wants it because it gets the Americans off their backs. The reason why I don't think that that's genuine progress is because there's almost definitely going to be no actual detail about what that agreement constitutes, no processes for implementation and verification. The INF Treaty we've been talking about mm -hmm. was very, very long and detailed. Uh, the Singapore summit that they agreed to, statement they agreed to when they first met last year, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, uh, had about four sentences um, mm -hmm. of actual substance uh, in them, and the negotiators have not actually been meeting uh, until last week. And so again, big on vague promises, maybe. Um, but short on detail. Uh, I say let uh, Donald Trump keep pretending that he's uh, making peace uh, with, with North <laughs> Korea. I, I really do. I mean, hopefully he's got no more than two years left, and let's let him pretend that he's made a fantastic agreement with them, Michael. As long as the ratings are good, uh, <laughs> he'll likely try to do that. Michael Fuchs is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs under President Obama. He is now a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. You can find them at AmericanProgress.org. And you can, uh, you can follow Mike on the Twitters at Mike H. Fuchs. Michael, always great talking to you, sir. I suspect we'll be uh, shouting again if and when this North Korea thing uh, ever comes together in the, in the coming weeks. Thanks very much, Brad. It's good to be with you. Thank you, sir. Okay, quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and the GNR to cheer us all up. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks.
Did I uh, put too much pressure on you there, Daz, with uh, <laughs> the promise to cheer us all up with the GNR? Oh, the Green News Report is what it is. You're going to do that, right? You're going <laughs> to cheer us up? Well. Well. All right, we'll get to it. Our latest Green News Report. We've seen helicopters that are constantly checking for people who are there trying to pluck them to safety. From hellish heat to unprecedented flooding, Australia hit with extreme weather whiplash. David Bernhardt, acting Secretary of the Interior, will be nominated as Secretary of the Interior. Meet the new Interior boss, even worse than the old Interior boss. Polar vortex forces nuclear plant to shut down. Plus, Trump administration preparing to bulldoze National Butterfly Sanctuary to make way for his border wall. The wrecking crew continues all of that bulldozing and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. If you're in the polar vortex, how are you going to stay warm? With solar panels? Yes, with solar panels. They work just as well in the cold as they do in the heat. That's why they use them in space, where it's very cold. Jesse Waters of Fox News, you're an idiot. But this is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, you just go right ahead because I'm over here fuming about how stupid Jesse Waters is on Fox News. You've got more important things to talk about. <laughs> yes. Well, first up, Australia is whipsawing in weather whiplash from historic hellish heat waves breaking all-time records over the last few weeks across the entire continent to now grappling with record flooding. The Australian Army evacuated thousands in the city of Townsville in Queensland after it was deluged with more than a year's worth of rain in only nine days. Wow. That caused widespread flooding and officials warning folks to stay out of the water due to crocodiles and snakes in the streets. Literally. January was the hottest month ever recorded in Australia. A preliminary computer model analysis indicates the heat extremes would not have occurred without a climate change kick to the system. Here in the U.S., the extreme cold temperatures brought by the latest breakdown of the polar vortex seriously tested the resilience of the U.S. electric grid, knocking out power in several states. The extreme temperatures also triggered a shutdown of one of two nuclear reactors at a power plant in New Jersey because ice accumulated on the intake screens that filter out debris from the Delaware River, which was crucial to keeping the reactor cool. Too bad they were using nuclear. If they were using solar, they would have all had power. Am I right, Jesse Waters? Utility Dive reports that the plant's shutdown comes literally the day after the utility CEO asked state regulators to approve nearly a billion dollars in rate hikes and new subsidies to reflect the resiliency of, quote, fuel-secure nuclear electricity generation. <laughs> but not cold-secure, apparently. Nope. Another big ice melt. There's a new massive cavity underneath a major Antarctic glacier that's about two-thirds the size of the island of Manhattan and nearly as tall. That's according to satellite measurements from NASA. Warming ocean waters are eroding the underside of the vulnerable Thwaites Glacier from below. The Thwaites Glacier acts like a doorstop, holding back the rest of the Antarctic ice sheet from flowing faster into the ocean. In the wake of these extremes, if it seems like these climate change impacts are arriving sooner than predicted, you're right, according to Dr. Michael Mann in a BBC interview. When we look at the melting of the ice sheets. Uh, it's happening faster than we predicted. That means that water is going off into the ocean, contributing to sea level rise faster than we expected. The sea ice in the Arctic is warming faster. 
giving us even more warming in the Arctic because you lose the reflecting properties of that sea ice so the oceans can warm even more. Fantastic! In politics, President Trump has announced in a tweet that he has nominated Acting Interior Secretary David Bernhardt to permanently take over the agency after the resignation of scandal-plagued former Secretary Ryan Zinke. Bernhardt lobbied the government for years on behalf of the oil and gas industry. Green groups universally condemned the nomination. In a statement, Earth Justice said, quote, Bernhardt's client roster reads like a who's who of the worst corporate polluters in the United States, from Taylor Energy to Halliburton. The Senate should reject this industry-sponsored hack. So this industry-sponsored hack was an oil lobbyist, and he's now set to run Interior. And over at the EPA, we have a coal lobbyist who is now running that agency. That's right. Bernhard may not be as flashy as Zinke, but he could potentially be more effective. Swamp drained. Finally, the Trump administration is now preparing to bulldoze the National Butterfly Sanctuary in South Texas for construction of Trump's border wall on federally owned land using existing funding approved by Congress last year. Conservationists say the wall will harm numerous species. U.S. Customs and Border Protection maps show the proposed wall will cut through the Butterfly Sanctuary, the Lower Rio Grande Valley National Wildlife Refuge, a state park, and a 150-year-old Catholic chapel on the river. The Department of Homeland Security has waived all environmental regulations that could possibly stop construction of a border wall. Can't we just bulldoze the Trump administration? I wish we could. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't stomach, I mean get to, please check out our website at greennews.com. Dot bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Green News Report. Thank you, Desi Doyan. Yep. I feel better already. <laughs> Not in the least. Not Actually, really. I had hoped to uh, have some time to follow up a little bit on that butterfly uh, center that has been shut down. Or no, it hasn't been shut down, but the bulldozers are knocking at its door at this point. But that'll have to wait for another time, I'm sorry to say. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Michael Fuchs of the Center for American Progress, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free. You're welcome at bradblog.com, though I do hope you will consider stopping by bradblog.com donate. To help Desi and me and I stay on your public airwaves uh, because you are the guys who do it, the listeners of this show. Thank you. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. See you there. Hope you will find, follow, and share us. And that's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 